Warrington Andy Campbell, and this is the History of Musical Theatre podcast. Welcome to episode two. Today we're going to be talking about Diaghilev's Ballet Russe. I want to thank the Library of Congress, who created a timeline of the Ballet Russe, which was immensely helpful. I added to that with biographies and so much, but the structure of that timeline, très bien. Also a heads up, last episode I said, we're not going to talk about death heaps this season. Yeah, this episode is going to span the length exactly of one Serge Diaghilev. So yeah, oops. But before we start, I've got a quick promotion. I am doing a show. I am playing Beatrice in Must Do About Nothing with Such Stuff Productions, as well as Movement directing the piece. If you're in Sydney this February, I'd love to see you there. We are setting Shakespeare's play at a music festival, and it features some very cool Leonard Cohen music. We're doing a little tour of Sydney. February 5th and 6th are at Murata House in Warunga. The 12th and the 13th are on Scotland Island. Saturday the 19th is at Jaggy's Regional Garden in Annengrove, and we'll be rounding it out with the 26th and 27th at the Hellenic Theatre in Marrickville. Each show has its own separate ticket link, so check them out in the description and in the show notes. Now, on to the episode. A couple of births. In 1872, Serge Diaghilev is born. He will go on to found the Ballet Russe and change the dance world forever. So, you know, no big deal. In 1881, Anna Pavlova is born, who would go on to introduce ballet to large swaths of the United States and inspire the generation which would shape Broadway dance. Another super minor thing. Next up is Igor Stravinsky, who changed the face of ballet music and was born in 1882. Tamara Karsavina is born in 1885. You may not have heard of her, but she was a prominent ballerina with the Marinsky and then with the Ballet Russe. In 1889, Vaslav Nijinsky is born to celebrated Russian dancers. His family actually ran a ballet company which toured around Russia. He was trained by his father and then at the Imperial Ballet School, making him basically a walking stereotype. Let's head to the next year and slow down this registry of births, deaths, and marriages. Serge Diaghilev finishes up at the Perm Gymnasium and his secondary studies. He adventures out into the wide world of Europe. Did you guys miss the registry of births, deaths, and marriages? Me too, let's get back to it. 1891 has two significant births. Bronislava Nijinska and Lydia Lopakova. The first is the sister of Vaslav Nijinsky. Russian surnames are weird and sometimes have a masculine and a feminine version. The second is a Russian dancer trained at the Imperial Ballet School who then danced with the Ballet Russe and eventually married John Maynard Keynes. If you're not a politics or an economics person, he's the inventor of Keynesian economics, which is a pretty prevalent economic theory. I also found a reasonably low-cost biography about her, so that was great. It's full of amazing quotes, which I will intersperse throughout this episode. Bloomsbury Ballerina is a great book, and I definitely recommend it. Let's skip forward a few years to, say, 1896, with the first of my many quotes. When he, Diaghilev, first arrived in St. Petersburg, fresh from his parents' country estate near Perm, all his dreams had been of becoming a great composer. His talent for music, however, had turned out to be less significant than the encyclopedic brilliance of his mind, the sureness of his aesthetic instincts, and the pushiness of his ambitions. 
In hindsight, he succeeded artistically, but at the time he was brave enough to work towards another creative pursuit, this time art criticism, which he first published in 1896. Leonide Massine is also born this year. He's going to be an important figure a little later into the episode, and definitely next episode. 1897 saw Diaghilev's first event, an exhibition in St. Petersburg. I'm going to have such a hard time recording this without singing Anastasia. Hopefully it'll be okay when I'm talking to Lyrica next week, but... Have you heard there's a rumour in St. Petersburg? Please cast me, guys. It's a great show. I made a little mistake last episode talking about Anna Pavlova. I spoke about her father working his way up in the ranks as an usher, which is just not her story. That story rightly belongs to Lydia Lopakova. There are a bunch of different versions and spellings of her name, and I'm not going to try and pronounce the micro differences between them. It's not a valuable use of anyone's time. Anna Pavlova's father died when she was a young child. It was 1898. 1898 was the year that Lydia's father, Vasily Lopukov, the same name sounds an ah, took her to the ballet for the first time. The young Lydia was only seven years old and had exactly Anna Pavlova's response. I'm paraphrasing, but it was something along the lines of, how do these people do this magical stuff? Can I do it? I must do it. How do I join the ballet? Or whatever that is in Russian. In the same year, she performed her first comedy role, Foreshadow, foreshadow. Lydia Lopakova will bridge the ballet theatre gap a little in Russia and more once she's in the States. Vasily was a peasant trying to move into a higher social class, and taking his children to the ballet was part of that. Vasily himself came from a family of serfs, people who could actually be traded by the lord of whatever region. He joined the army as a young man and became the head of the army choir. Apparently he was a lovely baritone. Rather than joining a trade, he took a pay cut for the chance at advancement and began to work at the Aleksandsky Theatre. He spoke German, he'd married a German Lutheran woman, and became known as someone who was quite well educated. This was in spite of the fact that he actually couldn't read, but every day he listened to plays and would recite speeches and repertoire to his family. Vasily wasn't a universally good father, though. Over time, he developed a tendency to drink, which drove a pretty significant wedge in the family. The audition process for the Imperial Ballet School was rigorous, but once accepted, the palace covered food, board, uniforms, and classes. It was a pretty safe financial bet. This system officially was based exclusively on raw, natural talent. But having someone on the inside with contacts definitely didn't hurt. Four of the five Lopakov Lopakova children ended up as dancers. The only one who didn't deliberately flunked his audition. Fedor, one of the boys, would become the director of the Marinsky, and his son Vladimir was a dancer, and his son Fedor was a dancer. They built a legacy, that's for sure. Training at the school was, again, rigorous. The book Bloomsbury Ballerina says every minute was punctiliously timetabled, but the students who graduated were accepted into the Marinsky Ballet and paid a generous salary. After retirement, the dancers were paid a pension. It was the same year that Nanette de Valois was born. She makes a little babby appearance in the episode. 
1899, Serge Diaghilev becomes the special assistant to the director of the Imperial Theatres. This really set the trajectory for his life. According to Bloomsbury Ballerina, he was aggressively inquisitive about every aspect of the theatre business. He had turned up uninvited to rehearsals and meetings, where his black hooded stare had seemed to penetrate unsettlingly into matters which did not concern him. It was also the same year that Vaslav Nijinsky joined the Imperial School of Dance. Skipping forward to 1902, a pretty important year. Within the Imperial Ballet School and the Marinsky, a series of tiny events began to lay the groundwork for what was going to happen. Tamara Kasavina graduated and moved from the school into the corps where she would begin her career proper. The young Lydia Lopakova, now 11, made her debut in the Imperial family's small home theatre. The intimate venue was a pretty daunting place to perform. She performed a small role in the ballet The Fairy Doll. It's not a super popular ballet in non-continental, non-European world, but it's a pretty precious piece, and Anna Pavlova would use a solo from it on her later tours. Lopikova was given many opportunities to perform throughout her young years at the Imperial Ballet School. As a dancer and as an actor, she'd play Peace Blossom in A Midsummer Night's Dream. For more details about me playing a fairy in an adaptation of the same play, keep listening to the season. A prominent Russian actress actually saw the child in a mime class and suggested that she be moved to the acting program. We'll see something similar happen later with Leonide Messine. Performing in these ballets and plays helped to prepare students for careers on the stage, inoculating them against stage fright. These ballets, mostly from the petit pas repertoire, also worked to reinforce the highly stratified hierarchy of the world around them, as well as within the ballet company the principals in the centre, the soloists next to them, and then the corps. But a challenger to the Petipas system was rising in the ranks. Mikhail Folkin was appointed to the girls' division at the Imperial Ballet School. The next year, Alexandra Danilova was born. She'd go on to be a Balanchine favourite and a musical theatre crossover performer. For Lydia Lopakova, it was a big performance year. She played the role of Marie in The Nutcracker, known outside Russia as Clara, As far as I know, it's the biggest role for a young girl in a ballet, and it's certainly one of the most prominent. At the end of one of these performances, the ballerina Ksenienka offered Lydia a ride back to the school in her carriage. Lydia declined because she'd heard from her devout Lutheran mother that Ksenienka was something of a gold digger. I'm a little bit worried that Ksenienka is going to come out of this story looking like a Disney villain, the ballet world's Cruella de Vil. She's not, but she's always going to be on the wrong side of artistic conflicts. But as far as I know, no puppies are murdered for her to get a coat. So that's cool. In 1904, George Balanchine is born. Whoop, 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 whoop. That's exciting. This year also marks the beginning of two revolutions. Firstly, the background political tensions build a little. We're on our way to the Russian Revolution. And secondly, Isadora Duncan, a dancer and dance maker, came on tour to St. Petersburg. Fokin saw her perform and was a big fan, and his teaching started changing a little around this time. But he always denies the connection between those two events. If you don't know much about Isadora Duncan, you can listen to Jerome Robbins and his peers from last season. 
I'll give you the TLDR or the TLDL. Too long, didn't listen. Duncan was a dancer whose technique was based on everyday movements like walking, skipping, jumping, and so on. Her performances were improvised, barefoot, and in later life, sometimes bare-breasted. She also had a fascinating personal life, and so many abandoned children. I don't have time to get into that here. The way Fokin set himself apart from the traditional Russian technique included encouraging students to move more expressively in the dance classes and listening more to the music. This came with benefits, but it was widely accepted within the ballet world that he didn't create the same level of technical excellence as the other teachers at the school did. I feel like at school, different subjects get segmented off from each other. The idea that theatre history or dance history is inextricably linked to regular history. It's something that, like, seems really obvious when you say it, but I've always felt like they existed separately. With that being said, it's 1905, let's talk about the Russian Revolution. This year, the initial protests began. They weren't actually originally the proletariat rising up because they wanted communism. They were looking for better pay and shorter hours, and many of the protesters were explicitly pro-imperial family. Said family responded with uh, massive amounts of violence, which was pretty effective in the short term. These massacres were seen by dancers and by students. The once sheltered academy was being exposed to the outside world. A union movement even began within the Marinsky, with Anna Pavlova, Mikhail Fokin, and Tamara Kasavina being part of it. They were working for better pay and working conditions. This actually worked, mostly because of the number of power players within the movement. Fokin didn't get everything he wanted, though, particularly in the ballet he choreographed for the school. Assis and Galatea. I need to make a quick correction from last episode. Number one, Nijinsky wasn't Assis. He was the lead fawn. Lydia Lopukova's brother, Fido Lopukov, see the last name thing, played Assis. Lydia herself danced the role of the Cupid. Number two, I said he wanted them to perform barefoot. He actually wanted them to perform in sandals. He was still turned down, though. Women had to wear point shoes. I mean, it's pretty understandable when you're preparing them for a career where they're going to be in point shoes every day. The ballet still made some significant innovations. The music used folk rhythms, and the choreography utilized classical Greek poses. As the revolution swings back a little, curbed by you know, violence. Within the Marinsky, any dancers who were able to be demoted, who were part of that, were demoted. Pavlova, Fokina, and Kasavina were all artistic power players, though, so their careers were safe. As a student, Vaslav Nijinsky was making waves. He was heralded as the eighth wonder of the world and the Vestris of the North. You might remember August Vestris from last episode. Diaghilev took a collection of Russian art to Paris to be displayed in an exhibition at Salon d'Automne. Hell yeah, basic French. The next year, he moves a step closer to the tours he'd come to be known for, this time presenting a series of historical Russian concerts in Paris. The year after that, Nijinsky joins the company proper. You know, when he was meant to. But goes directly into the rank of soloist, like a mad lad. What he joins, though, isn't a settled company, but a divided one. Over the previous years, there were financial rifts, but now the conflict was artistic. The whole company had essentially split into two camps. 
the more conservative camp with Kisinyanka and Alexander Krabinsky, and the new camp with Fokin and his favourites. This rift deepened when Fokin told Kisinyanka she couldn't wear her personal collection of jewels in some of his ballets. She was shocked that she couldn't wear an extensive collection of diamonds while playing a peasant girl. Fokin does get some wins this year, including the ballet Eunice, which was performed with bare legs and bare feet. Shockingly, this didn't go down well with the other camp. In 1908, Fokin continued to choreograph, creating a piece to Tchaikovsky's Four Seasons for the School. Lydia, ever one of his favourites, danced the Winter Snowflake. Diaghilev took another trip to Paris, bringing the opera Boris Gonov and the singer Fedor Shalapin for their Not in Russia premieres. In 1909, Diaghilev made his annual trip to Paris again. He brought the operas Ivan the Terrible, Ruslan and Lumila, and Judith. I don't know any of these operas, but Ivan the Terrible sounds mad. He also brought ballet for the first time, in the inaugural year of the Ballet Russe. The shows were La Pivion d'Armide, Polovistian Dances, from the opera Prince Igor, Le Festin, Le Sylphite, and Cleopatra. This season had some serious star power behind it. Anna Pavlova and Tamara Kasavina were the primary ballerinas. Vaslav Nijinsky, now Diaghilev's lover, was a standout in the company. His sister, Bronislava Nijinska, also danced with them. The season was a huge success. A footnote in the Bloomsbury Ballerina gives a hint as to why. The Russians created a dramatic contrast to the inert state of French ballet, whose productions had largely deteriorated into a vapid recycling of choreographic formulae cynically designed to showcase the fine bosoms and pretty legs of its female dancers. Rip French ballet. The single season turned Serg from a general Russian culture guy to a ballet empresario in a few months. In spite of the massive success of the season, Diaghilev was left 86,000 francs in debt to his French promoter. For Lydia, 1909 was her graduating year. She spent her summer performing at a military camp outside St. Petersburg. She then joins the Marinsky as a quarter ballet dancer. In the company, she continued to dance featured roles in Falkine's work and took extra classes with Enrico Cicchetti to help her move up faster. In 1910, dancer Elisa Markover is born. She doesn't feature again in this episode, but will feature again in this season. Back to Diaghilev, the Paris tour was incredibly well received except for the music. The dancing and set design were innovative, but the music really wasn't, so he commissioned up-and-comer Igor Stravinsky to write the score for The Firebird. But the season wasn't without its complications. There was resentment between Diaghilev and Folking and the management at the Marinsky. They were gaining more and more control over the ballet. The massive success also left the dancers, who were not invited, with their fair share of resentment. The management at the Marinsky threatened to fire any dancer who missed their scheduled start date back in St. Petersburg. Lydia Lopakova was invited to dance in the corps, which seemed much more attractive than spending the summer in her family's tiny little flat with her increasingly alcoholic father. Plus, it paid really well. The season was planned. The Firebird, Le Carnival, Scheherazade, Giselle, Les Orientales along with a few returning pieces from the previous season, and a couple of little 
one number deals. But the Ballerus ran into another problem. They didn't have their ballerinas. Anna Pavlova had organised her own summer tour, and Tamara Karsavina had booked a job performing at a top London musical for all but three weeks of the summer. Bokin favourite Lopakova was given the chance to step up into the role of the heroine in the Carnival and the prelude in the Selfites. The roles were different from each other, but she fit them both excellently. Her success in these roles led to more roles in La Princesse Enchantée, a part of her from Giselle, and the principal female in Polovitian Dances. The first piece is a part of her from The Sleeping Beauty, now commonly known as Princess Florine or Bluebird. The divertisement was originally called L'Oiseau de Fée, or Firebird, but then they actually had a full-length Firebird ballet, so they had to change that name. Speaking of the Firebird, it was primarily created for Tamara Casavina, but when she had to go to her music hall contract, Lydia was called up to replace her. This role was less of a success for Lydia. Some roles just aren't designed for some dancers' skill sets. But Lopakova's popularity was booming, and a year got taken off her age in the press, despite her already being the youngest in the company. When Valentine creates his Firebird in later years, there is some great current wife, ex-wife goss related to the technical difficulty of the role. So stay tuned for that. At the end of the summer, everyone is preparing to return to the Marinsky or the Bolshoi, depending on where they're contracted. But Lydia is feeling disillusioned. The strict hierarchy of the Marinsky, the mismatch between the grand classical repertoire and her actual skills, and the prospect of returning to the same pokey flat all made the year seem pretty dismal. A somewhat shady American producer offered her an 18,000 franc contract to perform in the States. For reference, that's more than Anna Pavlova made in a year. And Anna Pavlova was a big deal at the Marinsky. The offer was also extended to her brother Fedor and a Russian from the Bolshoi, Alexandre Volinin. She accepted. What she didn't do, however, was get permission to take the amount of time off she was planning on taking off from the Marinsky. <laughs> Alexandra travel to the US. They were promised they'd start their tour at the Palace Theatre, one of the most prestigious variety houses. It turns out that it was a little more profitable to just shoehorn them into a musical comedy. Uh, season 1, episode 2, if you're looking for exactly what a musical comedy is as opposed to a musical. Called The Echo. Not sure what the show was about, don't really care. When I say shoehorned, I mean shoehorned. Fidel performed a solo and Alexandra and Lydia performed a part of her. New York was enthusiastic about ballet, but not particularly knowledgeable. Even the term ballet wasn't universally used. Sometimes it was called toe dancing, sometimes ballot, and sometimes ocular opera. Finding time and space to take class was difficult. They asked for a little water on the stage before they performed to reduce the slipperiness. And the stage hands went a little overboard and completely drenched the stage. We are not dealing with the Russian ballet domains. For the dancers performing the same eight shows a week, 
every week was difficult. Especially since they were used to the Imperial Ballet's pretty varied rep. After a while, the show prepared to go on tour, and the ballet was replaced with a comedy duo. I said they were shoehorned. The star of the show said she was planning on adding classical ballet to her skills, saying, I can't even stand on my toes yet, but I hear that the trick can easily be acquired with two months' hard work. As someone who wants to get on point in the next year, I don't think she's right. <laughs> the trio set off on their own tour of vaudeville theatres, including the Orpheum Circuit. Gypsy, anyone? They were able to perform a more and more varied rap, which was good, but, you know, it was still pretty, pretty dismal. It also turned out that of the trio, only Fedor had actually managed to negotiate his leave successfully. So he returned to Russia, but for Lydia and Volonin, they stayed behind. If the prospect of staying in Russia seemed terrible before, it was worse now with no job and no permission to travel, because in Russia you needed permission from the imperial family to do that, and runaway ballerinas don't get permission to travel. They decided to stay in the US. One upside of the US season for Lydia was that the press she got had put her in the American imagination on the same level as Anna Pavlova. Something pretty unimaginable in Russia. 1911 was a year that did not begin well for Nijinsky. On January 23rd, he was dismissed from Marinsky. Saying that out loud, I just realised that it rhymed. <laughs> At least I think I'm funny. Why was he dismissed? He wore an Alexandre Benoit costume as Albrecht in Giselle. I think people, like, it wasn't modest enough. That was the problem. Fortunately, there was a job waiting for him. Diaghilev was inspired by the success of his first two seasons and decided to create the Ballet Russe as a permanent year-round company. That, and he was also dismissed from the Marinsky for costume-based reasons. He got an outside designer to design costumes for a ballet rather than using the in-house guy. Marinsky and their costumes. Ridiculous. Nijinsky joined this new company along with Tamara Karsavina. Mikhail Fokin became the principal choreographer. The season included a bunch of ballets that people don't really know. Petrushka, Le Spectre de la Rose, Narcisse, an excerpt from an opera called Sedko, and Swan Lake, which everyone knows. In the US, there was a glimmer of balletic hope. Sort of. Review dancer Gertrude Hoffman was putting together an American ballet ruse. In order to give it a sheen of credibility, she needed some bona fide Russian ballet dancers. Enter Lopakova and Volonin. The shows weren't of the same quality as the Folkin ballets they were based on, and Hoffman was not a great ballerina. So most of the praise for dancing went to Lydia. I mean, I don't think I would look great if I had Tyler Peck dancing back up for me. The next year, they presented Le Duc de Thémar, Daphnis et Chloe, et L'Après-Midi d'Enfant. This is really making me realize how many ballets I don't know anything about. Yay! <laughs> it also marked Nijinsky's beginnings as a choreographer. It was also the year that Casavina was promoted to principal dancer at the Marinsky while still performing for some of the year with the Ballet Russe. Lydia Lopakova's tour with the Hoffman Ballet was a brief, delightful time. Sure, she was back up to a less talented dancer, but she had the chance to perform iconic roles in a variety of ballets. Her contract, however, which was tied to Volonin's, was bought out 
by Mikhail Modin's company, Imperial Russian All-Star Ballet. Mikhail Modkin is the former dance partner of Anna Pavlova. They'd split up on really bad terms, and he started his own company, and then he needed to have his appendix removed. He needed someone trained in Russian classical ballet. So basically, Volanine. On the same contract, he got a ballerina, but specifically she said she was not to be given principal roles. Despite not getting to dance Swanhilda in Gopalia, or any other principal role, she was still given some good parts. This included the Dying Swan, which was shoehorned into this particular version of Swan Lake. In case you didn't know, the Dying Swan is to Anna Pavlova what Somewhere Over the Rainbow is to Judy Garland. This was actually the first time that Swan Lake was performed in America. It was not a happy alliance. Mordkin sabotaged Lydia once he returned from his surgery. He advertised she would be performing that evening, and it was, when it was time for her solo, another soloist's music played, and that soloist entered. Lydia's manager was enraged. Her next role was in the Vera Violetta Review with Al Jolson. For this, she was partnered with none other than Mikhail Mordkin. Yikes. This was not the ideal situation for either of them. Lydia received much better reviews than Mikhail, and eventually he got so fed up with the whole situation he took his wife and child back to Russia. Lydia was left partnerless, but then she found another job, this time as a premier danseuse in an operetta entitled The Lady of the Slipper. It was a Cinderella story, and she performed the Dying Swan solo. It's so versatile. And then she disappeared for a bit. 1913 was an extremely mixed year for Nijinsky. He'd make his choreographic debut, which was pretty cool. He debuted two works, Je, which no one remembers, and Le Sacre du Printemps, or The Rite of Spring, which sparked an actual riot and had to be changed in various countries to appease censors. Oh boy. The principal female role, or the chosen one, was danced by Maria Plitz, a former classmate of Lopakova's. Diaghilev also brought La Tragedie de Salome and the opera Kovashnitsyna. My Russian is not good. As a permanent company, they toured more broadly. You may have been wondering where the year was bad for Nijinsky. Well, the company went to South America, and in Buenos Aires, Nijinsky married Romola Deplinsky. His former lover Diaghilev dismissed him from the company. This is probably not entirely due to his marriage, though largely it was. Vaslav would later be diagnosed with schizophrenia, and he became increasingly difficult to work with. There are a number of reasons. Lydia Lopakova may have disappeared for a great many months. Burnout was definitely one of them. Pregnancy was another. But the other reason was a career change. She was looking to move into straight plays. There was a play written specifically for her called The Young Idea and then Just Herself. It had two titles. And it was a resounding flop. She received the first bad reviews of her entire life. Because she needed money to, you know, live, she started performing solos in a pretty prestigious cabaret venue. This was also the year the First World War began, even though in America it felt like a far-off non-reality. I know the Ballet Russe is called the Ballet 
Rus, but they also produced a bunch of operas. In 1914, these were Le Coq Le Rosenol, Prince Igor, and May Night. Prince Igor was also seen in an earlier season. Three new, three new ballets appeared this season. Papillon, Legend of Joseph, and Midas. Leonid Massine also joined the company this year as a dancer. Give him a minute, there's more. In 1915, Leonid Massine becomes the chief choreographer. So in podcast time, it took him less than a minute. The Soleil de Nuit debuts at the Grand Theatre in Geneva. Lydia, on the other hand, begins her year with a flop. Fad and Fancies. Another review. This was followed by more vaudeville shows. It was the second flop that encouraged her to move away from hyper-commercial projects towards the one she felt more artistically drawn to. She took a massive pay cut to do a show with the Washington Players, The Antic, playing Julie Bonner. It was a massive success, and led to another acting success, this time in The Whims of Marianne. There was a reviewer, Haywood, who saw her in the antic and basically fell in love with her. They started dating and even got engaged, but it was never clear that she was actually interested in him. Her interest pretty significantly diminished when, in 1916, the Ballet Russe arrived in America. She pretty much instantly rejoined. She started taking class once again with Giacchetti, and while there isn't an exact historical date for this, she also started dating Diaghilev's business partner, Randolph Barchi. When the Rus arrived in America, it didn't have its two main headliners, Kasavina and Nijinsky. It was for this reason that Lydia was pretty readily accepted back into the company as the new ballerina. They had to tone down some of the sexual elements in some of the works. d'enfants. <coughs> Coughing French is not a skill that I imagine that I have, but I do think I have it. Should I put that on my resume, like special skills? Can cough French under breath? I don't know. One step in that ballet was actually banned by court injunction. What they were able to offer, though, was real, authentic, cutting-edge ballet, different from the petit pas and folkine ripoffs that had been seen around the country. For Lydia, the highlight of this season was Brutushka. She also managed to keep her engagement to Haywood in the press, despite secretly getting married to Berucci, despite him still being married to his first wife. Three new works are created for the company. Kikamora and Las Menias debuted in San Sebastian, the third debut during the Russo's American tour, Till Elenspiegel. It was choreographed by Nijinsky after he returned to direct the company on their tour. This was because the company split into two segments at this time. Diaghilev, Massine, and Giacchetti, along with a couple of dancers, were hanging out in Italy, preparing some rep for the new season, while the majority of the company was in America performing under the leadership of Nijinsky. Vaslav wasn't a great leader, though. He was meant to create two new ballets, but the rehearsals were progressing slowly. Opening night had to be delayed, and management of the repertory excluding the new Nijinsky ballets was handed over to Adolf Bohm. Lydia's debut in the Folking Ballet Papillon was also delayed, but that was because she had to go get remarried to her husband. That man has had so many weddings, and has so few ex-wives for the number of weddings he's had. Back in Russia, Fidel Lopukov, Lydia's brother, choreographed his first work for the Marinsky. 1917 saw the first collaboration between Pablo Picasso, you know of uh, being Picasso fame, and the Ballet Russe, though not the last. 
For the ballet parade, he created sets and costumes and, interestingly, did the curtains? The previous year's Kikimura was um nom 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 into a new work called Contes Russes. A new Massine ballet, Le Femme de Bonne Humeur, also debuted, along with A Faux d'Affice, which was a light show set to Stravinsky music. Nijinsky joins the company for a final time on tour to South America. He asks to be paid in advance for every performance. He's fairly paranoid at this point. He claimed the year before to be owed half a million francs in unpaid wages. I don't know if that is true or not. He becomes pretty inconsistent in his performances, leading to the following poem. <clears throat> oh, Mr. Nijinsky, where have you been, Ski? And if you are here, why don't you appear and save the ballet from Ruinsky? Even when he was performing, he wasn't great to work with. He often partnered Lydia and took extreme, unexpected risks, including during partnering, which isn't safe. Welcome to me lecturing historical figures on how to do things safely, the podcast. He eventually leaves in September, performing his final show in Uruguay. This tour was not profitable, and when Diaghilev stopped getting paid, his dancers stopped getting paid. Lydia and Rudolf Bollum were among those who used their savings to help junior dancers afford to live during this time. The chaos of the company also led Lydia to beg Anna Pavlova, who was touring to the same city, for a place in her company. There wasn't one. At least some of the rep was good. Lydia was given the chance to perform Maruccia in Le Femme de Bonheur, which was so stylistically different that it made it extremely physically draining to perform. They loved it, though. Back in Russia, things had changed. The Russian Revolution had uprooted life as many people knew it. The ballet, though, was surprisingly unchanged. It did change names, though. The Marinsky became the State Academic Theatre for Opera and Ballet, and the Imperial Ballet School became the Petrograd Theatre School. So similar, but, you know, with communist aesthetics. A lot of the impact that the revolution did have on ballet was outside of Russia particularly for Diaghilev, who found funding his 1918 season pretty hard. The whole operation became a little less Rus. Diaghilev moved to Madrid and from there to London where the company settled. Tamara Karsavina moved with them. This was not an easy trip, though. The company did a tour of small cities in Spain, which was so barely profitable. Eventually, Diaghilev had to release everyone from their contracts, but did manage to pull together a season at the London Coliseum, a musical. Getting to London during the war was, uh, difficult, because there was a war. The Russian nationality of the vast majority of them also made it difficult, as Russia was now an enemy of the Allies. So yeah, they were given three days to cross France. Arriving in London, they were somewhat humiliatingly sandwiched between other variety show acts, but it paid for the company to continue to exist. A portion of the Ballet Russe season would be at the London Coliseum until 1922. The show was extended, which gave Lydia the chance to train with Giacchetti again, who'd set up a studio in London. Irish dancer Ninette de Valois would sometimes watch her classes, which were before her own. It was also during this time that Lydia Lopakova met John Maynard Keynes. In 1919, they were able to move from the Coliseum to a more prestigious theatre. Yay! This also meant they could do full ballets. 
double, yay! There were two new ballets this year. La Boutique Fantasque et le Tricon. <laughs> the habit of saying eh instead of and between the names of ballets is very hard to break. The former of these is a Messine ballet about two can-can dolls who decide to run away from the toy store to avoid being sold to different people. This was also Václav Nijinsky's final year on stage. At all. He was 29 years old and had a nervous breakdown, which would later be diagnosed as schizophrenia. Lydia also leaves the company this year and makes plans to divorce Beruccia. I would like to apologise that every time I pronounce his name it's been different, but that's life. The reasons aren't super clear, but the combination of his bigamy and the fact that he left for another country with her pay packet in his pocket might have had something to do with it. She planned on marrying a General Martinov, whose actual identity has never been confirmed. In 1920, there were three new ballets. Pulsanella, Le Azu Feminili, and Le Chant du Rosinot. If that last one sounds familiar... It definitely could be because I mentioned it earlier in the episode. This ballet was adapted from the 1914 Diaghilev Stravinsky opera Le Rosinov. Having run away from the ballet, Lydia went back to Broadway in The Rose Girl, which had a ballet in it choreographed by Mikhail Fulkin. That show was a flop, and the ballet was cut three months before the show closed. This is also the year Alexandra Danilova graduates from the Petrograd Theatre School. Who is she? Someone who's important later. Also someone who in 1921 joined the state academic theatre, yada yada yada. I think the new name is dumb, bite me. Lydia Lopakova rejoined, re-rejoined the Ballet Russe, which desperately needed a star. Kasmina left because touring took her away from her children for too long, and Messine was removed after he married dancer Vera Savina. Leonide was a former lover of Diaghilev, and the latter didn't love it when his lovers married women. This year, the Ballet Russe repertoire involved Chute and The Sleeping Princess, based on The Sleeping Beauty, but given a different name because of a pantomime that was running at the same time. The season also included Cuadro Flamenco, performed by actual Spanish dancers and not the usual ballet dancers. The Sleeping Princess marked their London return. Diaghilev had lost his choreographer and thought it would be a great ballet to present to bide himself some time to find a new one. The ballet was a mixture of Petipa's version with some new choreography by Nijinsky's sister Nijinska. Lopakova danced the Lilac Fairy and Princess Florine, the role La Princesse Enchantée was based on. She would also do the occasional show as Aurora, but the hyper-classical, hyper-technical role was not exactly her cup of tea. The show didn't do well. Frederick Ashton, who would go on to become a renowned British choreographer, didn't like it. John Maynard Keynes did, though. He'd be married to Lydia a few years later. The next year, the company debuted Le Renard, as well as a shorter version of The Sleeping Princess entitled Aurora's Wedding. If you're wondering how The Sleeping Beauty becomes a two-hour, three-act ballet, the answer is divertisements. The first act has a whole bunch of fairies dancing variations, the second act has the prince seeing Aurora in a dream, and in the third act there are so many celebratory divertisements. It's actually a great place to find a variation if you need one. 
In Russia, Alexandra Danilova is promoted to soloist at the State Academic Ballet. 1923 saw the debut of Dance Russe and Le Noche from the Ballet Russe. The next year was a pretty big one, both for the Ballet Russe and for some other important individuals. On the company side, the following ballets were debuted. Ahem. Le Ténétation de la Berre. Le Biche. Ballet de l'Azur Féminin. Six dances from L'Azur Féminili. Le Fechot. Le Tremble et Le Nuit sous le Mont Chauve. All of that, plus the operas, La Colombe. Le médecin malgré lui, Philemon et Bessis, and une éducation maniquée. So, you know, just a little season. Mrs. Messine, or Vera Savina, is promoted to principal dancer. Yay for her! Outside the Ballet Russe, George Balanchine and Alexandra Danilova are now part of a group that tours outside of Russia called the State Soviet Dancers. That doesn't last for long, though, and by the end of the year, they've both joined Diaghilev and his company. 1925 included two suites of dances from classical ballets. Le Conte de taken from Sleeping Beauty, and Lac de Signe, from Swan Lake. This year also saw the debuts of Le Fisting, Zephyr et Flore, Le Malo, and Barabo. For Alexandra Danilova, she spent 1925 with the Monte Carlo Opera Ballet. In 1926, there was Romeo and Juliet, Le Pastoral, Jack in the Box, and The Triumph of Neptune. 1927, saw Le Chat, Mercure, and Le Pas d'Acier. There was also the Stravinsky opera, Oedipus Rex, based on everyone's favorite Greek play, and Freud's favorite thing to talk about. No, his favorite thing to talk about was based on the play. Alexandra Danilova also got promoted and became a principal. Yay for her. 1928 sees three new ballets. Ode, The Gods Go A-Begging, and Apollo Musette. The last of these is actually the first Balanchine ballet that we still have the choreography for. By that point, he'd created about 90 other works. Balanchine had some conflict with Diaghilev over this ballet. The former wanted Danilova to dance the principal female role and the latter thought the ballet was a bit boring. It turns out that actually the solution to both of their problems was putting Alexandra Danilova in the principal role. What we've learned here, folks, is that Balanchine knew what he was doing. The Ballet Russe created two new ballets in 1929, Le Bal and Le Fille Prodigue, or The Prodigal Son. The latter was choreographed by George Balanchine. It's really different from normal classical ballet. If Petipa created rules, Balanchine broke them. The role of the siren, for example, is in point shoes, but only really because they make her taller. The ballet had acrobatic elements, but a lot of the central moments weren't danced, but acted. Balanchine created this great work, but it couldn't be separated from Diaghilev's influence. Serg chose the collaborators, which George didn't always love, and the use of props in the show is pretty much trademark Diaghilev. On the 19th of August, Serg Diaghilev died. A few days later, the following appeared in the London Daily Express. I do not think the ballet will long survive. There is all the machinery, but no driving force. 
The man who built the machine is dead. Without the puppet master, who pulls the strings, the members of the ballet are only lifeless toys. The puppets are sad little things just now. And that is where we're going to leave it. The ballet roost scattered, finding jobs elsewhere. The Russian ballet under Soviet control. American ballet, little more than a sideshow, enjoyed but ill-understood. The fate of ballet is hanging in the balance. What will happen, you will have to wait and see. Next week, we will be having an interview with SAB alum, cast member from Anastasia on Broadway, guest star on Bunheads, and an original Marie slash Little Dancer cast member, Lyrica Woodruff. She's also one of my ballet teachers. She's mad and we love her. If you want to see me in person, do some in-person theatre, the best kind of theatre, then check out the ticket links for Much Ado About Nothing. I really hope you enjoyed. Until next week, keep dancing. (laughs) 